Tomorrow is Memorial Day in America. Most of you probably didn't need to be reminded of that. The book of Judges is has been, for me, as I've studied it, uh, I've had two weeks to look into this book, now has been, uh, for me, probably uh, the most surprising book, I will say, in its content, as I've thought about its application to our culture. Uh, it, it actually, I'm persuaded, is perfectly fitted for this day, um, as we really, I should say, Memorial Day for our own nation, because Memorial Day, although many people are a little bit confused about the distinction between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. The reality is is that Memorial Day uh, is something uh, that uh, is, is it represents a distinct failure in the nation of Israel, chronicled in the Book of Judges. The reality is is one of the biggest one of the biggest failures of the people of Israel, chronicled in the Book of Judges, is that they refuse to remember the wars of God. And they also refused to recognize that they were always and forever on this earth until heaven would be in a state of warfare. Can you imagine? Can you imagine an infantry battalion telling the commanding officer that they're tired of studying warfare? That we would like to do something else? Does that sound odd to you? And it is true, evangelicals of our day, you know, the reality is is that they're tired of thinking about the battles that God has set before them. But the reality is this, when the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, what did he say? He said, I'm glad that I've managed to become so spiritually mature that I no longer have to fight. Is that what he said? No. He said, I have fought... The good fight. And you say, well, I'm not a soldier. Well, <laughs> okay, you, you've got to become one. That's, that's what we're doing here. The Apostle Paul said that I have finished my race. You don't, you're not a runner? Well, friends, that's why we're here. We must be soldiers and run. This is, what, this is the race that's set before us, Right? This is the very idea. And the reality is that I cannot think of a book of the Bible that's more applicable to our nation. Literally, and I'm not calling for this, but I wouldn't be the first to at least mention the words. The book of Judges ends in civil war. And the Reformation Study Bible brings, I think, a very helpful summary of the book of Judges. Uh, It starts with conquest. And the conquest didn't happen in the book of Judges. It happened in the book of Joshua. And then after that conquest comes... Coexistence. Coexistence with what? With sin. With sin. And then after that comes chaos. Conquest, coexistence, chaos, I think is fitting here for the book of Judges. So, uh, so this, is, this is not a, a shameless allegorical look at the book of Judges whereby we will take all of the bloody warfare out of the book and apply it only to a spiritual warfare. Because the reality is, is that the, we'll see here again and again that the nation of Israel in the book of Judges, they failed in physical warfare because they failed in spiritual warfare. And we can, we can discuss... Right, their spiritual failures as symptoms, but the reality is, is their spiritual failures are fruit. Their spiritual failures are fruit of what it is that they had been involved in. We uh, certainly, as a nation, are 
in a very strange time, a time that the Lord is working mightily, a time and an opportunity for us to see God literally sifting His people and drawing them into a measure of significant, deepened faithfulness. That isn't happening for all of His people, but nonetheless it is happening. And for that we can be very, very grateful. And another aspect of this culture that is absolutely true, uh, and I have mentioned this before, is we can look, again, uh, we can look at our own military and we can look at the motto of the Navy. The motto of the Navy used to be, frankly, our own church's motto, Semper Fortis. And the characteristic that is needed, most needed in this hour, is courage. It is courage. And the Navy's motto used to be that. But what's the Navy's motto today? It's a global force for good. Let me tell you something. When your Navy decides that they're no longer projecting lethality on a world that's horribly array, then we see, again, a tremendous marker in our culture. Right? This idea, because right now, our senior leadership and our military has decided that the greatest thing we need is diversity. We've got to somehow celebrate transgenderism, right? And so that's going to make us a stronger nation. And this is simply coexistence. We are experiencing, uh, undoubtedly, aspects of chaos in our culture. And we see this chronicled in the book of Judges, right? In front of our very eyes on the surface of the text here. A lack of physical courage is not somehow eclipsed by valuing spiritual disciplines and faithful religious practices. Sincere active devotion to the true and living God should bolster one's strength for physical warfare in fighting for things that are worth dying for. Again, the Apostle Paul never proposed, nor nor is there a place in Scripture where there is a proposition that we will mature our way out of spiritual warfare. Or for that matter, physical warfare. You know, this has already been tried. When you look at the end of World War I, there was this idea that was perpetuated among many that fought in the war. It was this this thing called the myth of progress. And the myth of progress determined many to decide, you know what? We're smarter than we used to be. There's never going to be another war. We're, We're so far advanced in this. And what happened is many, many people decided that There was yet nothing left to fight and die for. But we know that isn't true. And we know that there are many, uh, well I should say some at least, very faithful people who had determined as they looked at their experiences in World War I, they understood and continued to really proclaim that, yes, in fact there are things worth fighting and dying for. And two of those men, you might be surprised to know, were men who wrote things that you are likely very attracted to. And those men were C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Both of those men were infantry officers in World War I. And both of those men understood and contended for it. If you consider their works, you would see that their works are about what? They're about warfare. Their works are about warfare. It's about something worth fighting and dying for. And that's what we see here in the book of Judges. Joshua was a glorious display of faithfulness. Judges is a glorious display of failure. And and it's good for us to take note of that as we, again, consider this idea. One's ability to fight in a field of battle persistently over a long course of time will always be hampered and ultimately fatally degraded due to spiritual apostasy. 
Failure to win the battles of spiritual warfare. Israel as a nation studiously failed the spiritual battles and became so degraded spiritually that God's fatherly displeasure was exhibited in judgment, a refusal to fight for them, thus making them the total failures in physical warfare. Our ability to rule ourselves ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit, the same as our Lord Jesus Christ. The sinful works of our hands and the sinful words of our mouths are the result of a spiritual battle already lost. The gossip and slander present in a group of women is not so much a symptom of spiritual corruption, but the fruit of a spiritual battle lost that has resulted in physical destruction. Lust of the flesh, proud speech, self-promotion, and domination of others bring men into full contact with physical warfare and are the fruits of spiritual battles lost. When I'm wind-jamming about how great I am or how much I know, when I continue to entertain lustful thoughts, when I find my greatest joy in posting on Instagram what I've made or where I've been, I must run to the Father. Repent, set in place aspects of accountability. I must involve myself more fully in the means of grace. This is the failure of Israel in the book of Judges. Time and time again, they turned away from God over and over again. As I said, the book really is summarized in Judges chapter 2. You've heard in your hearing here this idea, and I draw your attention again to these three ideas, conquest, coexistence, and chaos. And we could really state another single theme of the book, and that is simply this. It's stated four times in the book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. How many well-meaning people have you brought the gospel to and they've said, well, I worship God in my own way. I worship God in my own way. But the reality is, is it's not a worship of Almighty God was never a multiple choice idea. God has determined what is faithful worship, right? But everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So let's look here initially at this idea of conquest, very simply in In chapter 2, verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Conquest. Conquest. Where was that in the life of Israel at this point? Conquest. It was all in the past. It was all in the past. And you see, God's intent, and and frankly, the, the, the machinery of this world that God has set up is such that we have wars to fight. We have things we must do. We, we, we must look at conquest not only in the past, but in the present. And expect that God will also give us conquest in the future as we walk with Him. Coexistence, the present reality of judges of the people of Israel as they lived here chronicled in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Think of it. 
Think of it. Your grandchildren, when they think back on grandma and granddad, right, they have no recollection of the worship of Almighty God. They have no, there's no scrap of paper left. There's no letter to them referring to the scriptures of Almighty God or worship of God. There's nothing in their memory about the things of God. This is the state of the book here. This is the state of Israel. No recollection. One generation after this faithful generation of Joshua. And it's gone. It's all wiped out. They're, they're immediately falling into this worship of false gods. An absolute distressing situation that they're in. And then we have chaos here. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord has warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Total lack of order, no godly dominion, only self-serving domination. That's it. That's where they are. That's the state of the nation of Israel at the end of the book. There it is. That's not the whole story though, right? What can we glean out of this? Let's look a little more deeply. We had kind of a bird's eye view. Obviously this entire sermon is a bit of a bird's eye view. We're going to come down a little closer to the ground here. Let's look at, when we think of the book of Judges, often when God's people think of the book of Judges, they think of a cycle, right? There's a lot of repetition in the book of Judges. And when you, when you think of this cycle, it really, I encourage you to recognize that it's better defined as a downward spiral. There is a difference, right? A cycle is kind of a, it's kind of a two-dimensional thing. You know what I mean? What I mean, children? Two dimensions, right? That's the X squared right? We got width, we got length. That's it. No depth. It gives one the impression that we're really not, there's no moral up or down here, right? This cycle. But that's not what happened in Judges. What happened in Judges is a downward spiral. It is circular. But we added a third dimension to this. We're going down. We're going down morally, right? The civil rule of law is going down. This whole idea, right, is this, this, this downward spiral, is what's happening. Think about the first judge. Who was that? He's the only guy we don't have any dirt on. Othniel. It was all downhill after that. Right? It was all downhill after that. And so, he's the first judge. We have this cycle. So again, this first point... The cyclical, unending nature of holy war. So when we think about the Pentateuch that we've just walked through, we look at the book of Joshua, we see all of... Think about the magnificence of the establishment of the tabernacle. Think about all the precise aspects of the tabernacle. And again, what is the tabernacle a picture of? Where were the plans drawn up for the tabernacle? In heaven. The tabernacle is a picture of heaven, right? And we have the establishment of the priesthood. We have the establishment of substitutionary atonement in the Pentateuch, right? And what do you see in Judges? Nothing. 
The word tabernacle isn't even in the book of Judges. The only reference to priests in the book of Judges is a perverted priest. This crazy story at the end of, at the, end of the book of Judges where these guys basically create a religion, they create an idol, they snatch a Levite, and they say, be my priest, and he says, oh, okay. The unending nature of holy war. Mastered by their enemies due to spiritual degradation, refusal to maintain the means of grace with evangelical obedience, tabernacle sacrificial practice, not even mentioned, no regular proclamation of the Word of God. This is the first aspect of the cycle. Mastered by their enemies due to spiritual degradation. Large swaths of evangelicals that claim God doesn't bring discipline or judgment to the redeemed. If you look at Judges and you say, oh, well, the Lord walked away from the covenant. Oh, no, He did not. (laughs) That's part of the covenant. Right? That's part of the covenant. Is this idea that what is the result of walking away from God? Well, I will no longer fight against your enemies. I will place you in a position of such distress that you will call out to me. Right? And this is the idea that we see here. And there, again, as I said, there are large swaths of evangelicals that claim that God doesn't bring discipline or judgment to the redeemed. That His people would never be subject to His fatherly displeasure. This cannot be true. And while there's much biblical support for the orthodox view that God most certainly expresses fatherly displeasure upon His called out people, uh, this book certainly validates this idea. Again, who was the law of God given to? A redeemed people. Who entered into a covenant with God? A redeemed people. Who is it in the book of Judges? Ultimately, as a nation, right, they're a people called and set apart for God. This is who they are. And God is keeping His promises. Right? He raises up leaders, right? Is there a remnant? When you come out the other side in the book of Judges, who's left? Who is left standing? Well, the seed of Christ is left standing. Right? The seed of the church is left standing. The gates of hell did not prevail against the church in the book of Judges. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of them when it came out. But there you have it. Our own confession, chapter 17, um, paragraph 3, we have this idea of the perseverance of the saints. And in this, in this aspect of our confession, we see, uh, again, an affirmation that the people of God can certainly enter into the fatherly displeasure of God. And there will be times of difficulty, of distress, when God removes His hand, right? In a sense, uh, in the sense of the Holy Spirit's power, but nonetheless, He has not walked away from His people. He's not walked away from His people. This is a very important idea. Very, very important idea. Now, the second aspect of this spiral, downward spiral, secondly, they cry out to God. The pinnacle of corporate godliness during this period was to cry out to God in distress after all their idolatry, wickedness, led to their inevitable degradation, chaotic culture, and judgment from God. Always an expedient repentance instead of a long obedience. Again, we think about this cycle, and when you think in Judges, and you think, oh, well, there was always this, there was always this, this, this cycle of, 
of holiness, where they were up here just worshiping the Lord and hearing the proclamation of God, and they were involving themselves in, in, in the worship in their families and leading and raising up faithful children. That, 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 that doesn't show up in the book of Judges. Now, what I'm saying is, what's recorded in Judges is the very pinnacle, the very height of their holiness as a nation was simply in absolute distress and hunger and desperation. They cried out to God. That was it. That was as far as they got, right? That was the very pinnacle of their, of their holiness. That was the very pinnacle of where they were with God. And so we should ask ourselves a question. Where, 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 where is my high point, right? We, we all kind of understand this certain cyclical, hopefully upward spiral nature in our lives. But where are we? You know, where, where do we stand with this, with this idea? The third aspect of this is that God raised up a leader or someone steps forward to overtake enemies. I'm not so sure that everybody, every judge and judges was called of the Lord. Yeah, there were men that raised themselves up. There were men who, who were rushed upon by their countrymen such that they could lead someone into battle. But they were incredibly morally degraded, right? And there was, just like when Samson, what did Samson say when he first looked upon this woman that he hoped to marry from the Philistines? What did he say? Well, he said the same thing that was in the theme of the book. She looks right in my eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? And so we have this incredible degradation, even in the strong man, Samson. Now, so we have this, this cyclic nature, right? And we say, okay, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, I want to draw your attention to really a parallel passage in Romans chapter 7. We won't spend a lot of time here. This is, a, this is a common passage that you will likely be familiar with. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 25. And so the Apostle Paul is writing here, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now think about what Paul is saying here. He sounds just like, the, just like David, right? Oh, how I love thy law. Right? How is a young man to keep his way pure? By living it in accordance with your law, right? But, verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war. War? War? War. Against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Was there no Greek word for difficulty here? Could Paul not like use the word skirmish or something? Or maybe I had a momentary affliction or something like that? Is that what he said? No. He said, in my body, there is a war raging. Now again, there are some 
There are some who would say, well, the Apostle Paul is referring to his life before Christ. I recommend to you that you reject that understanding of that passage of Scripture. Okay? So, again, you know, I recognize that there are likely some good men that would affirm that idea, but I, it isn't orthodox. So, and we, we look at the book of Judges, and we say, is this, is this the life? That God has called me to? Is this this living the Christian life? This thing that is described as as warfare? Right? But But again, think of it in its far better view. That's one book back, right? In Judge in Joshua. Okay? Okay, so here we are. We had success. We had the spiritual disciplines applied, the proclamation of the Word of God, the atoning aspects of the sacrificial system, the priestly work, and so forth in the book of Joshua. But in Judges, we have none of that. We have none of that. Right? So again, here is, once again, a lesson for us. A lesson for us. The same idea that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 7. So again... We have that God raised up this leader on the third rung of this downward spiral. There was a failure to propagate the gospel in this aspect. We think about Samson's parents. This is an interesting uh, passage here in Judges chapter 13. So here's, here's Samson's parents, right? So initially an angel shows up at Samson's mother, declares to this woman who's never had a child, she's barren, that she will have a very promising child that he'll take to himself the Nazarite vow. She, in fact, will also have a form of that herself. And so, and so, uh, and then her husband, uh, Manoah, comes up and he says, well, how are we supposed to raise this child? So this is... Again, this is a very clear indication of the state of spiritual affairs in Israel at this day. So if you were to ask a faithful Jew today, likely it would be the same story if you were to ask a faithful Jew, right, many thousand years ago in the day of, in the day of Judges. If you were to say, well, what's the most important passage of Scripture, what would they say? Well, they'd say Deuteronomy 6. They'd say the Shema. Hebrew, this idea, what does Shema mean? It means here. It's the very beginning of this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you shall teach your family as you walk by the way, as you lie down, as you rise up. This idea. And here's, here's Samson's parents. Here's, here's one of the most promising individuals born to Israel that day. And what, where are they at? First contact with the enemy, they're down. They have no idea what to do with the child. What are we doing? Right? So this is the situation that they're in. This is where where Israel is at this point in the story. They've sinned away their ability to resist sin. Now you may say, you know... To continue to fight the same war over and over again, father, son, grandson, great-grandson, mother, daughter, granddaughter, great-granddaughter, to continue to fight this war, over it's kind of demoralizing. Some of the 
folks that were in Iraq and Afghanistan have expressed a bit of distress over the fact that many of those cities have been retaken by bad guys. But we should ask ourselves the question, did you expect that you could take this ground one time and that it would never be overtaken by the enemy? Did you expect that you, you could clear an area of all the bad guys and they would never come back? Did you really think that's how it works? No. No, it isn't how it's worked in the past regarding our own military. It's not how it works today. We are inclined to want to step out of the cyclic nature of life. We're inclined to do that. I draw your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. By the way, while we're here in Ecclesiastes, I'd like to begin reading at verse 3, but I want to draw your attention to the simple word vanity. So the idea of vanity here in in, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, I want to encourage you to recognize and see that a synonym for the word vanity isn't useless. It isn't meaninglessness. Right? That's That's not the idea behind vanity here. The main idea behind vanity is shortness. It's the vaporous nature of our actions, of our thoughts, of our lives, right? It isn't that they're unimportant. It's just that they're short-lived on this earth, this idea. Now, let's look at chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Again, we're in this cycle here, right? The writer... Uh, again, of the book of Ecclesiastes here, Solomon, he's, he's drawing us in, used by the Lord to, to be drawn into this, which seems like this endless uh, sort, of, uh, sort of hamster trail here, okay? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. What are we to learn? Friends, look, is your ear not satisfied with hearing? I mean, what do you want to do with your ears? (laughs) Is your eye not satisfied with seeing? Are your hands not satisfied with working? Because you see, that's why God made your hands. That's why God made your eyes and your ears. 
You see, the reality is, is on this earth, our lives are in this cyclic nature. And the wise man Solomon is drawing our attention to this. Look, we may spend a lifetime trying to get out of what is hopefully an upward spiral spiritually. Solomon is telling us, he's putting us on notice, you know what? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And we get, we get to the end of the book, and what is it that he recommends? Well, he recommends faithfulness. He recommends fighting the good fight. He recommends running the race. Walking with the Lord. Taking joy in what it is that God has given you on this earth. As you walk with the Lord, the people of God. Those are the excellent ones, says the 16th Psalm. So we have that as an application. Now I draw your attention to the second idea here that we get. We're stepped out of the cycle, or this downward spiral, into, secondly, this idea of the purpose of holy war. The purpose of holy war. Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Judges chapter 3, 1 through 6. Now these are the nations that the Lord left. You might be tempted to get to the end of the book of Joshua and say, Hey, you guys didn't finish. What's going on here? No, no, Joshua finished the work that God had given him to do. Right? It's not as if the Lord said, Oh, I forgot about the Amalekites. They're still there. You're going to have to deal with those guys. Right? No. We see here in Judges chapter 3, these are the nations the Lord... Who left them? The Lord left them. To test Israel by them. That is, that all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. Now wait a minute. You mean to tell me that the Lord decided to leave some warfare for the people that followed Joshua to do? Is that, what he, is that what he's saying here? Yes. That's exactly what he's saying. Is that, you know what? I'm God. And one of the awesome things in the book of Judges is that we see God presented as who? A mighty warrior using the elements of creation to do battle. Right? You know what? He built the earth in six days. I'm persuaded he could have done it in one. Right? He could have wiped out all of Canaan in Joshua's lifetime, but he chose not to intentionally that they might learn warfare. That's what the Bible says. In verse 2, these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines. Hey, here they are. I'm letting you know. Okay, here's some recon already. These are the guys that you're looking for, okay? All the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who lived on Mount... There they are, Mount Lebanon. They're there from Mount Belhermon as far as Lebo Hamath. That's where the guys are. That's your initial recon. That's, that's where these folks are. Right? You don't need a drone. Okay? That's where they are. You can go check them out. And then... They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which He commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Fighting is distasteful, it's difficult, it's dangerous. Israel refused to battle against her enemies. 
They thought maybe they could try the evangelical trick whose project has failed completely. Winsomeness, maybe? Owen Strand's got a good podcast on that. Okay, well, we'll express our power by enslaving the people that we were supposed to remove. How does that work out for them? Not well. Oh, well, we'll marry into their families and our amazing spiritual influence will overcome all the bad stuff. How did that work out? Fail, fail, fail. All those things did not work out. The purpose of holy war, that they might see the Lord's hand, the Lord's might firsthand in warfare. This idea, the purpose of holy war, reveals that complacency kills and that warfare should strengthen their resolve, in fact, and streamline life's priorities. A warfare mindset. That's some of the things it does. Strengthens resolve to go forward into difficulty. But it also aligns your priorities. When you're in warfare, all of a sudden your priority list is very short. It's very short. You're doing this, and this, and this. That's it. Everything else is off the table. Right? So this is the idea. Now thirdly, we see that in the book of Judges, leadership is a major theme. Leadership is a major theme. When you look at 6 through 10, you see again Joshua. Now Joshua certainly was a mighty man called of God. He wasn't the last man called of God. But nonetheless, we see that God has decided to design this life on earth, walking with the Lord, to require strong spiritual leaders. Right? This is not... We don't mature our way out of the necessity of strong spiritual leaders. And if we see anything in the book of Judges, we see that. There's an absolute desperation for leaders. I draw your attention to chapter 8, verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 22. Gideon has defeated... Many thousands with his 300. Why did the Lord decide to do it with 300? Well, chapter 7, verse 2 indicates that they were inclined to man glory. You ever heard that? You ever seen a leader who was inclined to man glory? They're everywhere. Right? They're everywhere. And so the Lord wanted to make sure, hey... Who won this battle? It wasn't you guys. Right? 300? Seriously? I mean, who fought this battle that Gideon did? I mean, Gideon, they didn't even have to pull a a piece of armor or a sword. They killed themselves. Right? That's what happened to the Midianites. Okay? So that's what's going on. But again, look at this desperation for leaders in chapter 8, verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, they said to Gideon, you are such a spiritually deep man. You are so committed 
to the ways of God. You have led us into evangelical repentance, into the ways of God. You've reestablished the priesthood in Israel. Is that what they said? No, let's look what he said. He said, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. Why is that? Well, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Oh, is that right? Is that the story? Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says that the Lord won that battle with 300 men who didn't even need swords. Now, there was more, right, afterwards. But nonetheless, it was God who won this battle. Absolute desperation. Spiritual depth overlooked. Even in victory, God is overlooked. We see an indictment on the state of leadership in chapter 4, verse 4 here. Chapter 4, verse 4, we have these mighty men of Israel, this nation led by men. And what's happening? What do we have recorded in 4.4? Well, a woman is leading Israel in chapter 4, verse 4. And she makes sure to tell Barak that, yes, you will go to battle, but the Lord will not use your hand to kill the enemy. Absolute degradation in this situation. This is the state of leadership. A woman is leading Israel. I'll draw your attention to the song of Deborah and Barak in chapter 5 of, of Judges. Chapter 5, verse 16, we see here uh, an indictment on those tribes that did not come and help and do the work of Deborah and Barak. Verse 16, Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Uh, Well, she goes on here. She says, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still on the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. What's happening here? We'll just look at Reuben. We'll take the tribe of Reuben out and we could do this for the others. But where, where was Reuben? Well, they like the sheepfolds. You see, war is distasteful to them. They, they don't like it. Friends, this is, this is life. This is an indictment against the leadership in these tribes we see here. And what do they do? Well, what does Gideon do? When Gideon is called in chapter 6, this is an amazing point in the story. Chapter 6, verse 12. This is very interesting. Chapter 6, verse 12 of Judges, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. At this point, Gideon's he's kind of doing this here. You know, he's, he's going, let's see, that's not me. Who is the angel of the Lord talking to? And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all His wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? Hmm. Is that a good summary of what just happened? So this is Gideon's perspective. What just happened? Right? What just happened in the eyes of Gideon, this one who would lead Israel for a number of years, is that actually what's occurring in Israel is that God has failed them. 
and that he's walked away from the covenant. Right? Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, how many yarns have you made up about your own failures? Hey, it's for this. It's for that. This is why I couldn't be there on time. Or this is why I wasn't ready. Or this is why this failed. Or No. No. You see, the Bible goes ahead and puts us on notice as well. Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin. The Bible says he typically comes to himself, repents of the Lord. Is that no? No, that's not what the proverb says this. His heart rages against the Lord. God, this is all your fault. No, it isn't. No, they have sinned away what it is that God gave them. A gross misunderstanding of the importance of personal and corporate holiness in the health of a nation. Now, the book of Judges also prepares us for the future reign of the son of David, not the son of Saul. Now, when we go forward into the book of 1 Samuel, and by the way, we've already done Ruth, in case you were wondering, you will notice there a distinction and that the first king that was chosen, he was chosen, why? Well, I mean, he, he stood head and shoulders above the... He appeared to be a guy that was a warrior, right? He was from which tribe? Benjamin. Right? So Judges sets us up for the failure of the tribe of Benjamin and their methodologies, and Saul, who ultimately was a self-serving king. Right? And the monarchy is a chocolate mess. Okay? But we'll get into that in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But nonetheless, we see here that there is a contrast, even in the book of Judges, between the tribe of Benjamin and who is it that leads the way in putting down a Lord-directed fight against the tribe of Benjamin. Who is it that leads the way? the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. Again, pitting, pitting here Saul against this spiritual godly man, David. Right? So we see we're already kind of set up for this. David, of course, was from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was chosen as king with an exterior that appeared helpful in battle. David was clearly a man of incredible warrior capabilities, but he had a spiritual depth that Saul could not rival. It's this spiritual depth revealed in the Psalms that he was used to, used to write that distinguished the true biblical man from one who's merely a self-serving fighter. David, of course, points beyond the merely true biblical man to the divine Savior, Jesus Christ. So another question for us, where do you stand regarding the spiritual warfare of your life? Are you fighting in such a way as to win? A thoroughgoing redemption must be at the beginning or you'll be rolled over at every turn.